Folletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Folletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome our guest, and I'm honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest was the former assistant special agent in charge of the DEA uh, Tampa office, and I want to welcome Mike Powers. How are you today, Mike? I'm doing fine. I'm in sunny Tampa, and uh, the weather is, uh, is perfect there. Okay, great. So I, I believe that you will agree with the success of DEA and their agents uh, at times really go unheralded. You know, with with the administrations that we've had and uh, the fact that they're, we even have cities now that have made small amounts of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera, uh, not, not illegal anymore. Um, I, I mean, I think we're heading towards obviously a more liberal situation. Uh, right. Well, I guess uh, it remains to be seen. Right. So, Mike, you served our country twice. Uh, first, you served as a captain in the United States Marine Corps in Vietnam. At that point, while you were there, you worked with you were a recon Marine and you worked with the CIA uh, in, the, in the Mekong Delta. And then you were advisor to the Vietnamese irregular units. And then uh, you started your career with uh, DEA. And, and if you want to talk a little bit about uh, your your situation in Vietnam, we'll be happy to listen to you. <laughs> well, again, that's all that's old hat. But um, um, I actually joined the Marine Corps in 1963. Uh, I became second lieutenant and went through the basic school and um, went to the third Marine Division, which was then in Okinawa. Had a brief tour in Vietnam in 64, but there was nothing going on. Came back and was lucky. Um, I went, I stayed in small unit management. I was a platoon leader uh, in a recon company, um, which I tried out for a very elite uh, force recon in Marine Corps. And I um, was lucky to make it and uh, stayed a couple of years with them. Uh, we did a lot of parachuting, a lot of fun stuff, uh, learned how to scuba dive, did a lot of uh, scouting and patrolling, went to schools. And then in uh, 1967, um, I was off to Vietnam and the CIA actually picked me up and asked me to work in the Mekong Delta with um, Vietnamese irregulars down there, which meant a lot of them were uh, former convicts and that kind of thing, but um, they were tough people, and uh, I spent a year and a half living with them in the Mekong Delta, actually in Vinh Long province, which was uh, a hot spot in the Delta. Was there for the Tet Offensive in February of '68, uh, which uh, we, we had a lot of fun in doing that, to say the least. Uh, 
not, I wasn't too sure at that point if I was either going to make it back, but we did. And um, I always say in uh, November of 1968, I was in Vietnam. And in March of 1969, I was in New York as a DEA or BNDD, then um, made a quick transition. I came back and decided that I had to do something a little more exciting than selling men's shoes. So I uh, was lucky enough to come on with uh, then BNDD, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which was one of the predecessors to DEA in New York. Um, and from there, became an agent in New York, as I said. And uh, I'd like to tell people what, what it was like in 1969 in New York, if, uh, if I could. Um, sure. That be all right? Absolutely. Yo, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, the early days, the early days, let me say that in, in March of 1969, um, I started with EEA. And I went to my first meeting. We were at 90 Church Street, which was actually right next to the World Trade Center, which was just starting to be built in 1969. And um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from New York anyway, so I, I fit it in with New York. But my first meeting in New York was uh, run by the uh, training officer in New York, a, a group soup named Ben Fitzgerald, who was actually an attorney. And um, at the end of the meeting, he introduced me I sat down and I thought that was the end. And then he said, uh, everyone in the room who hasn't worked undercover in the last two months, stand up. And so even though it was my first day in the job, I stood up and looked around and there was some other people that stood up. And then he said, anybody that hasn't made a registered case this month, stand up. So I stood up, sat down, he said, anyone who doesn't have a registered informant, stand up. I stood up, sat down, and that was the end of the meeting. And uh, they assigned me to a group in New York, a guy named Clarence Cook. And um, so he said, well, we're working tonight. I said, good, I'm working too. He said, do you have any questions? I said, yes. How do I get an informant, open a case? work undercover because next month at the meeting i'm not standing up again and i did and um that was that was my introduction to new york um i was working undercover within within a week um i went out the first the first time i was going out undercover uh, a guy named tommy o'grady who was uh, an agent in new york now deceased um said to me come here kid you have to change your shoes. Went, what do you mean? He said, crooks don't wear those kind of shoes. They wear buckle shoes. So we switched shoes. I mean, they go out and work undercover. And uh, it went on from there. Actually, Rudy Giuliani tried my first uh, narcotics case in New York um, that I that I put together. And um, I decided in New York that uh, it was target rich. And there was plenty of people that was selling dope. And um, along with the rest of New York, uh, I started working, I think, pretty hard. Um, we were paid then what they called AUO, which was uh, actually like 39, 40 hours a month for overtime. 
and uh, in in our group in New York, we were working instead of uh, thirty nine or forty, we were working at least a hundred hours uh, of overtime per month. Uh, when you went to work in New York, uh, a lot of times you didn't go home for a couple of days. They actually, had beds in the gym and. Um, well, actually, we, when we moved, uh, we, we moved the offices, but uh, they put beds in the gym and uh, you spent a lot of time there. But uh, New York, I think, um, was a place to uh, to open up as, as, as a DEA agent. Uh, as I said, it was target rich. Um, heroin and cocaine were the uh, drugs of choice in New York. Um, it didn't make any difference. Ethnicity-wise, you know, if you had an informant that told you someone was selling dope, you went after him. And um, I used to say I never really outsmarted anybody. I just outworked them. Uh, we used to, I did search warrants on Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, you name it. Because the crooks would never expect you um, then. Uh, they would expect you to to hit them on a on a weeknight or a, even a Saturday night. But um, you come in there um, on a holiday, and they'd look at you like, "What are you doing working today?" <laughs> yeah, you, you know, some of those uh, crooks. Maybe you're right with maybe some way some people do investigations, but uh, just uh, my experience working with DEA, just like yours. I mean. We were out there all the time and, uh, you know, they would, uh, you know, be surprised, I guess, if we hit them on a holiday like an Easter when I worked in Easter and uh, they don't understand how dedicated the DE agents really are. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We, for a while there, we worked, um, we were working at the, the Cuban end of it uh, up in 135th and Broadway. There was a bar up there called the Blue Mirror, which was uh a, a focal point for, for Cuban dopers. And um, we used to spend uh, days watching the Blue Mirror and just picking up plates and taking pictures of people coming out because they were almost all drug, drug peddlers. And um, I, had a, I had a good informant into the Blue Mirror. And uh, as I spent more and more time in New York, I, I became obviously more proficient um, with uh, with informants and uh, and trying to figure out what the dopers were doing, um, actually jumping ahead a little bit uh, at a later date, um, they had a, they had two conspiracy groups in New York, one in the Eastern District, one in the Southern District, and um, so I uh, ended up testifying in a conspiracy trial. The conspiracy group took a lot of the people that I had arrested with a couple of one, two, three kilos and put together a big conspiracy case. And I was sitting in the Eastern District in a witness room ready to testify with some of the people I had put in jail like a year or two before. And now they were testifying against their sources of supply. So one of them looked at me and said, you're the guy that arrested me from then, then BNDB, from the Irinoc, from the, from the feds, right? I said, yeah. He said, you arrested me. I said, I did. He said, well, what did you get me with? I said, I think we got you with about a kilo and a half or two kilos of, uh, and I can't remember, heroin or coke. And um, he, he started laughing. 
And he says, you used to ride, you used to drive that Jello Chevrolet, right? The yellow Chevy, which I did. I said, yes. He said, you know, we used to, he said, you know, we used to move big, big amounts of dope. I said, no, please tell me. He said, we used to move it on a Sunday morning at about seven or eight o'clock. He said, I knew you probably worked Saturday night, but you probably went home around two, three, four o'clock in the morning. He said, I know being a good Catholic, you go to church on a Sunday morning with your family. So you weren't even going to be back till the afternoon. So about eight o'clock in the morning, we'd look outside the yellow Chevrolet. And if it wasn't there, we'd move 30 or 40 kilos uh, down the street. And, um, and that was a, an epiphany and awakening. And, and one, of the, one of the many awakenings I had as the, as the dope peddlers. You know, I mean, they had me figured on, and they had me outsmarted, really, when you got right down to it. I thought I was doing really great to get them with, like I said, one, two, three kilos. And um, they were moving 10 times that amount around me, over me, through me, under me a little bit. Uh, you know, it just shows you that, uh, um, you know, they're, they're, out, they're out there thinking, too. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're thinking, you know, they're not completely stupid. Um, so that you know that was like I said, uh, good you know good fun uh, good fun in New York. Um, needless to say, with my um, my roommate from uh, when we went through uh, what they call the academy then, which really wasn't an academy, but went through the three months training for BND. There was a guy named Frank DeMillo. Shortly after we both got back to New York, he was killed in a big shootout up there, and. Um, Another another epiphany, uh, you know, I obviously saw plenty of things in Vietnam, plenty of action there, and I'm, I'm back in the thick of it uh, very quickly in New York. Uh, actually, a funny story, the, one of the first shootings uh, that I, I didn't participate in, but, but you always, you know, as you know, if there is a shooting, you respond to it immediately. It was a guy named Zach Robinson. And uh, the guys that were out there actually shot him nine times, as I remember. And the, the only gun you were allowed to use in New York, the only pistol you were allowed to use was a uh, SNW 65, which they gave you when you when you graduated from, from the academy. Six shot SNW. And Zach Robinson was shot nine times, never with a 38. He had bullets in him from. <laughs> From 22 long <laughs> rifles to 45, and actually survived. By the way, he actually survived. He's a big fat guy. But he actually survived, and um, at that time, based on that, and I guess other shootings, the EA said we better we better re- revamp our uh, policy here as far as handguns go. Oh, the 38, the 38 went out the window, as you know, and you could pretty much carry what you wanted to. But um, New York, I, I always, I just uh, mentored an agent uh, who's now out in Los Angeles, and, uh, got him through the academy, and uh, he was uh, waiting. Uh, now, now you pick your, as you probably know, now you pick uh, your post of duty, um, like yeah. within the first week or two of, uh, of the academy, and uh, he, he called me at home. He said, "Where do I go?" I said. What's your choices? And he gave a couple, and they said Los Angeles. I said, Yeah, you want to go to a big city? You know, you want you want a target-rich environment. 
know, he's on the meth task force out there now, and uh, he's doing doing real well, you know, doing real well. But uh, once again, I mean, you know, you go to a small town, and uh, you have to work hard for, for the targets. In New York, it's not not difficult at all to find someone selling dope. That's for sure. Well, then you spent you spent a significant amount of time in New York, Mike, and then uh, eventually you went uh, you went overseas. I went to Malaysia and Thailand, and uh, another another target rich environment. Uh, Malaysia at that point. This now now I'm now fast forward to like 1977, and um, Malaysia at that point was a, a transit company on country or. A, source of supply for all of Europe. And uh, then there was number three heroin and number four heroin. Number four heroin was the white uh, China. They call it China gold, but the WUO globe was the the big big kilo package. So yeah, they had uh, what they call number three heroin uh, in, uh, in, in, in Malaysia. They were making it uh, it was a lot less difficult to make than number four heroin. Um, as you're probably aware, um, heroin is a very fragile crop, and it's a difficult crop to produce, unlike, for instance, uh, meth, which is done in, a, in any, pretty, almost anywhere, including the back of a pickup truck. Um, co- cocaine, coca, which uh, actually grows almost wild down in, uh, in South America and the Andes. You know, heroin is uh, made from the opium poppy, which is a very fragile crop. And actually only um, um, can be grown at, at altitude with a certain amount of uh, moisture and uh, and a lot of chemicals to produce with what uh, is known as uh, from opium to opium base to morphine to heroin so um what they did was they 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 didn't uh, produce the the number four white heroin that everybody really liked but in europe they were using this number three which uh was about like 45 percent pure um and they were sending it back in large quantities but usually through tourists so we developed a whole informant program uh, using tourists and once again had some decent informants, some very good informants into them. Uh, the problem then was that uh, everybody that was involved in it, even though they were Malaysian um, by, uh, by birth, they were all Chinese um, and they spoke very little English. So the informants that we had, um, it became difficult to get informants. We had to get Chinese informants um, who spoke English to us and then spoke at least one or two dialects for the, for the Chinese end of it. Um, Mandarin uh, was not a language then that, uh, although it is now, it was not a language then that uh, the Chinese uh, spoke. They were more ethnic and um, spoke uh, Cantonese, a lot of them from Canton province, uh, uh, Fukanese from uh, Fukuan province, I think, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they had their own, they had their own uh, language uh, barriers uh, as well. Uh, but 
we developed some great informants. There was a guy named Matty Moore who was in Amsterdam. Um, we were sending suitcases full of uh, dope back there. The, the cops in Amsterdam uh, did a great job of uh, putting in wiretaps and uh, and following them. Uh, they had uh, uh, cases upon cases upon cases that, uh, that we were sending back. Um, Almost uh, the kind of a controlled delivery program, uh, or at least in my mind, the predecessor to it, uh, which 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 paid dividends uh, at a later date. Um, as, I, as I said, I don't know whether you heard me. I said, you know, we we actually set a record there. Uh, Matty, uh, I'm sorry, a guy named Steve Say, myself uh, worked undercover, and we uh, we we got I think 50 keys of uh, of heroin, which was you know, quite a bit of heroin at that time. Um, also another, although not, I can't say a funny story, but a strange story. Um, years later when I was back, um, I was reading, uh, the Washington post and I saw just a little blurb and said, Malaysia, uh, executes its first female. And, uh, then of course, uh, Malaysia and Singapore, they executed people for, uh, large quantities of dope and um the female uh i, I read the name and it was one that uh, um, actually i did undercover uh i posed as an airline pilot i delivered i think ten, five to ten kilos of heroin to me and um there were a couple of guys and a woman and i think i ended up executing her uh for, for, for the um uh, for the case itself, um, one of the one of the strange parts of uh, working, um, and not only in Europe, as you may be aware, or even Far East, is what they call the agent provocateur law. In other words, you can't provoke the act. So when we were working undercover, right before the bust went down, we'd give the signal, but then we'd have to get out of the area there. We'd either have to run away jump in a car and drive off or whatever, because if we were there, we were, we were subject to arrest as well. So not only did you have to worry about the crooks, but you had to worry about the cops coming in. Obviously they were in on the whole thing, but you couldn't be there um, when the arrest went down. Um, so I, you know, it was doing business there was, was, was a little different than doing business here. Um, doing those cases, Kind of led that uh, in uh, 1983, I came to Tampa, uh, very small. I was, I was the RAC here, the resident agent in charge. Very small office at that time, and they um, hate to say they weren't doing much. Um, I quickly uh, went to Tampa Police Department, who gave me a, a sergeant and, and six cops, and they said, have at it. And uh, and we did, and uh, we we found that uh, there was a needless to say a large group here in uh, Tampa that uh, were uh, importing large quantities of cocaine. Um, the controlled delivery program um, like to say that that we developed it here, although a guy named John Pulley from from Miami was was also instrumental in it. Uh, Control delivery program was uh, we would have informants who would sell us 
um, as transporters of of, uh, of the cocaine from South America, um, mostly almost all Colombians. Um, they would come up here and look at us, look at our warehouse, look at our undercover guys, and then um, mainly due to the fact that we had really good informants, um, they would uh, give us some upfront money. Um, we got as little as $10,000. We got as much as a million dollars. They would give us that money up front just based on a handshake that we would bring the dope in. Um, we would send an airplane down to Colombia. Um, it was actually uh, romanticized uh, in the Tom Cruise movie, um, I think, Made in America, if you, uh, if, if you right. remember it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, right. And that movie actually, that movie actually was, was accurate. Um, if you remember the one scene where he's actually cutting jungle to try to move his airplane back a couple of feet, um, because he's got to take off on an unapproved runway. Uh, and, and exactly what happened to him happened to, to us many times where they just keep putting cocaine in the place, in the plane. And so the plane was, you know, over, like double overgrowth. Um, we had uh, then the airplanes weren't what they are now. We had we were using mainly Cessna 421s. Um, you got the undercover plane, and of course the two pilots that were in it were um, our informants. So. Um, the informants would land at the strip, they'd gas them up, and then start putting the cocaine on the plane. And then in the end, the Navy didn't even try to put one of their guys on the plane. And, our, you know, our, our guys would say, hey, we can't take off. Um, so you you were limited by the amount of uh, weight that you had in the airplane. I actually started taking flying lessons uh, because I wanted to understand exactly what was going on there. And uh, we had... You know, many DEA headquarters people come down, including the then administrator Jack Warren, and um, we we would give them a total briefing on on the problems that we had bringing cocaine in from South America, particularly Colombia. Um, of course, once we brought the cocaine in here, they would ask us to also deliver it. So we would deliver it to Miami, New York, Chicago, wherever, and once again. Um, pick up a large amount of money. Uh, we charge $3,000 a kilo transportation fees. Um, and a lot of, a lot of times even $5,000 a kilo. So you have 500 kilos and you have quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of money coming to you when you deliver the cocaine. And, um, it turned out to be a, a wildly successful program. Uh, I was actually doing uh, controlled delivery cases for other officers as well um, who would come to us and say, how do we do these cases? And we get pilots and we get the planes to send them to South America. So uh, the controlled delivery program, um, in my in my estimation, was it was a huge success. Um, you know, we, we one year there, uh, just a damp RO, I think, we brought in like ten or fifteen thousand pounds of cocaine. Um, well, that that 
you know, that's not a record, but what is a record is all of that cocaine brought in millions and millions of dollars um, uh, to, you know, to, 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 the, to the United States. And, um, of course, we would uh, spend some of that money, um, but not only for our case, but for future cases. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think the uh, the controlled delivery program, and it goes on today, by the way, it's just continued. Um, when we went from we went from airplanes to boats, uh, we started using uh, traders and that kind of thing to bring to bring the cocaine up. And even though the crooks were doing it, now we were doing it as well. And um, I think it put uh, you know put the, some fear in them every time uh, every time one of them went down. Uh, the Colombians used to tell us about Tampa. They said uh, the Colombians uh, developed a, a phrase about Tampa. Tampa as Muri Trampa. Uh, Tampa's a trap. Uh, so then once again, we moved, we moved our program away from Tampa and started using places like Sarasota, uh, which is only 60 miles down the road here. But the Colombians didn't know that. Um, you know, they no longer had to come to Tampa, so they were happy. Uh, and uh, the program, I retired in 1994, and at that time, the, the program, program was uh, was doing well. Much to my knowledge, it's doing well as of uh, today. I mean, they still, the control delivery program is still, still in existence. Yeah, no doubt, Mike. It was uh, a great program that you guys developed. Uh, it still is today. And how it disrupts the uh, the cartels and their operations, and uh, DEA has always been on the forefront of coming up with new plans, new ideas, and, and addressing uh, the issues at hand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I agree with you. And uh, um, you know, today, of course, the the, the problem is uh, terrorism, and, and hopefully, DEA has uh, um, developed programs because. Um, Dope and terrorism go hand in hand. Lebanon, is, as if you remember, was a perfect example. Um, you know, Lebanon uh, was a was a transit point for heroin, at least at one point. Uh, I'm a, I'm a little aged here, needless to say, so I don't know exactly what's going on today. But uh, um, yeah, they've got that. They've got their hands full. Um, we yeah, I'm talking about one more case here. Uh, we, we culminated uh, 1990. Um, we, we had the U.S. record for cocaine. We got 9,000 pounds of coke here um, on, a, on a freighter that came up from Leticia, uh, Colombia. And um, if you if you look on a map, uh, Leticia is actually very southern part of Colombia, but it's right where um, Brazil. Um, and um, Ecuador actually meets, so there's, there's like three three countries that come together there. But what's important is the Amazon River uh, flows through Leticia, and of course flows westward out to the Atlantic. And uh, a guy named Michael Salikas, uh, who's actually a Greek from Tarpon Springs, Florida, which is a town outside of Tampa. Uh, Michael Salikas um, was uh, famous uh, in the United States. He was called the Monkey Man. 
and uh, he used to import monkeys uh, for research purposes into the United States. Well, not only was he importing monkeys, but he was importing cocaine. When I got here, um, they would search his ships religiously when they came in. He had a couple of uh, small freighters, actually, Amazon Trader, Amazon Sky, maybe one or two more. And um, they would get some solid information that there was large amounts of cocaine on these freighters. And customs would search the, the boats and never and never came up with any cocaine. And uh, he would bring up huge amounts of cedar logs um, that were that were used here in the United States for uh, uh, decorative purposes and uh, and and, and you know, wooden situations in your house. Well. They'd bring, the, they'd bring all of the wood off, and then they'd search the boat. Well, we uh, we got some information, and the information actually came from Colombia. It was an anonymous source. We uh, nicknamed the, uh, the source Deep Throat. But Deep Throat told us that he was putting the cocaine in the lumber. And all of a sudden, it was like an epiphany. Aha! Of course, and that's why they never came up with any dope. It was already off the boat by the time they searched the boat. So he came in with a load of lumber on the Amazon trader into St. Petersburg, Florida, which is just outside of Tampa. And he had a million board feet of uh, cedar logs, cedar wood. And he actually wrapped the cocaine boards inside of bundles with boards on the outside that had no cocaine and then even surrounded them with bundles that had no cocaine at all. So the boat the, uh, the boat came in, the lumber came off, um, went to a warehouse, we bugged the warehouse, we put a camera in the warehouse, and we actually had pictures of Salikas picking out certain boards and moving them to his warehouse in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Ultimately, um, I decided to take the thing down. Uh, we had some Colombians up here from Colombia, needless to say. Salikas, who then we found out was actually heading for Greece. Uh, Probably so he wouldn't be arrested if, if the thing went bad on him. We arrested everybody. But then the question was, we had a million board feet. How the heck are we going to figure out which ones have the cocaine in them? And um, I went to the airport and got some uh, x-ray machines they weren't using. We started putting the boards through the x-ray machine. And again, long story short, uh, we came up with about 9,000 pounds of coke. Which, uh, which was a record then in the United States, but uh, but since 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 it's been broken many times, even or several times anyway, needless to say. But uh, I always I always say, well, we had we we got that record anyway. Uh, but uh, like I said, it was it was soon broken, uh, and thank God, you know, thank God for that. So um, you know, I it was uh, yeah, you know, we went, but. You know, the, the main thing, Larry, was 
I, I always um, made it fun for our office. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, DEA, DEA at that time was serious business with serious people. But I mean, I, I had so much fun doing that stuff. I mean, I'd go right back to it today if I could. Um, yeah. And I think A everybody in my office did too. You know, we, yeah. a- absolutely. But, but you know what? Well, you know why? One of the reasons was it was fun. You know, it was, it was fun. I mean, um, you know, my, my, my wife used to say, you go to work every day and you can't wait. And I could, and I couldn't, I, I, I'd wake up and I go, oh, man, I can't wait for today. You know, it's you against the bad guy and he's holding all the cards you know, and, and, and to catch him, you either need a good informant or you have to work harder than him. Um, of course, um, we had some help with the with the listening devices and uh, good informants, uh, wiretaps, uh, inf- information coming from other sources, including overseas. Uh, a great intelligence uh, service. Uh, you know, if you remember, I mean, they started the uh, the intelligence groups and everything. Uh, sure. Going back into the seventies, and. Um, I mean, look, you know, the intelli- I mean, look at the intelligence that even then we had, and today it's even much better. You know, you sit down at the computer and you can find out, you can find out every, every, everything about everybody, including what the deodorants they use. You know, uh, so, um, and I, you know, I think especially overseas, the crooks, I don't think they know that. Um, you know, but when you, when you look at it today, I mean, they were, look at it today, you're using submarines. Uh, yeah, for sure. Now. Yeah, no doubt. Tough, you know, tough, tough going. Yeah, tough going. You know, tough going. Yep. Yeah. Hopefully, DEA. Uh, hopefully, DEA is, is rising to the occasion, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think they are, Mike. I hope. Yeah, I hope you're right. You know, I hope you're right. I still think stay in touch with them, needless to say. Yeah, right. uh, My agent out who's out in Los Angeles. Uh, my agent out in Los Angeles tells me that the the meth group out there is is doing real, really well, you know, really well. I guess none of us really retire from DEA because we always uh, <laughs> try to keep our contacts and what's going on with the agency and and things that are happening uh, all the time. So uh, I, I, this is what, what all of us do, I guess, to a certain extent. We never really cut the ties 100% uh, because we're so interested in, in what takes place and how much all of us, a lot of us as uh, respected the agency and, and the men and women that worked there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I mean, I, you know, there, there was some very, very dedicated people, man. And I'm, I, I know there's gotta be some really dedicated people now. Um, and, uh, the, the job obviously in some respects has gotten harder. Uh, hopefully, uh, due to some of the things we did, maybe it's gotten a little easier. You know, because, <laughs> yeah. uh, They say, well, that didn't work and that did work. But, right. uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I was I actually, when I left DEA, um, I went to the state attorney here and, um, in Florida and, uh, I was just an agent and, um, I started working my cases through DEA here and actually started bringing asset forfeiture money into the state attorney's office. And, um, you know, I was working cases now on the other end of it where, uh, you know, I was no longer the supervisor, but I was the guy that was putting the cases together. 
and uh, you know go back to your roots and sure. um i really i really enjoy, i really enjoyed that um uh, and even even after that uh, larry uh, i um became a private investigator but I, I i always tried to do narcotics cases and uh, bring um you know bring the bring the cases and the informants to dea um and i did um so yeah you're right i kept my i kept not only my roots but uh you know kept my perspective and, and i stayed up with dea yeah which was really good and a lot and a lot of fun well mike to wrap things up here, um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the show and talk about uh, your career, your adventure. Um, and I also want to say uh, thank you for your service in Vietnam, because a lot of people have gone unrecognized, and again, for your service at DEA. So with that in mind, Mike, uh, thank you once again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, Larry, it was my, it was my pleasure, and, and, and thank you. You know, it was, it was, I'm honored that you would even think of me. Well, Mike, you're a true legend of DEA, without a doubt. And uh, again, I appreciate it, and uh, <laughs> take care of yourself. All right, bud. All right, thank you. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.